Good morning. You know, it's wonderful for us to have those who move from other places and come here and place their membership. It is wonderful to have a year like this year. I believe the number is seven babies that have been born to us. But when we talk about kingdom growth and the influence of God's people spreading, it spreads through things like we've noticed in the last couple of weeks. I realize that there may be some time when this is going to happen again, and it may have happened already for Antoine, and I'm sorry for that. But I want to take just a moment to ask Antoine, if you would, please, to stand. For Jason and Leanna and Raylan, if they would, please, to stand. These are your newest brothers and sisters in Christ, having studied God's Word and have been convicted about the power of the message of salvation. And they have, uh, in obedience to the gospel, been baptized for the remission of their sins, at which point they became part of the family of God, our family here at Lehman. Let's encourage them. These are the first of the most important steps that they will ever take. And they, as our brothers and sisters, need our encouragement and care. Thank you very much for that. These are the commands and the decrees and the laws which the Lord your God has given to me to teach you to observe them in the land which you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God by observing His decrees and His commands so that you may live long in the land. Hear, Israel, all that I command you so that it may go well with you and that you may greatly increase in the land which flows with milk and honey, which the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. That's reading Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first five verses that Stephen read to us a moment ago. It seems that this paragraph can divide into two subdivisions, and I want to look at the first of those for a few moments. They are the formation of, or the first part of, what the Jews call the Shema. And the Shema itself actually was comprised of three paragraphs. The first two paragraphs are right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the third paragraph is over in Numbers chapter 15. And there's an emphasis in both places. The emphasis in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is that the people should know who God is and what their duty was to Him and what their duty was to His Word and what their duty through the Word was to their children. And the third paragraph over in Numbers chapter 15 was another reminder of the responsibility that they had to obey God's law and to remember the exodus from Egypt. With regard to the Shema, it was an expectation, a social, a national, a religious expectation that each and every family that made up the nation of Israel was going to cite, they were going to say the Shema two times every day in the life of their family. And it was one of the first things that a Jewish newborn would memorize and would hear. Now when we think about the emphasis that Moses is making in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and throughout the Old Testament, certainly the emphasis that the Bible makes on the whole, but among the people of God, the Jews, in the Old Testament we realize that there was this great stress upon the people coming together 
and gathering their hearts and their minds collectively around the word. This would have started in a very special way at the tabernacle. It would have started, it would have continued with the building of a more permanent place in Jerusalem with the temple. It was to continue in public festivals and feasts throughout the year. And then even after the people of God go off into captivity and they come back, and they had the uh, building of the synagogues, the local places where the law could be read, the people were expected to come together. And they were to study the Bible together. But I want you to notice that this was an extension. This was an outgrowth. That when they came together of something that was a part of people's lives as families, that the Bible was not just to be a weekly thing, that it was to be a part of everyday life. We've reviewed the history of the Bible school before. We think about why is it that after the 9.30 worship hour, we're going to go into uh, classes that are age appropriate, and we're going to study specific lessons that teachers have prepared. What, What brought that about? We don't see that structure necessarily in the Bible. In a modern sense, Robert Rakes is credited with that in Gloucester, England in 1780 to help children who did not have child labor laws, who had one day off a week and they were uh, uh, ruffians on that one day. And so they needed a place to gather. And so they started the Sunday school and it grew very rapidly. By 1800, 200,000. By 1850, 2 million. It caught on the United States and there were classes by the middle of the 19th century for all ages, including adults. And so in some way, we're standing on the shoulders of those efforts. And we understand that a collective study of God's Word goes back to the first century church. Passages that we might read in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13 and Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16, where we see congregations giving a special focus on the study of God's Word. But it's more ancient than that. It goes back to the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra gets up and he reads the Bible in a Bible study format, all that could listen and hear with understanding from the morning to the midday, and and, uh, Nehemiah 8 verse 2 through 3, and they listened enthusiastically. And Ezra caused them to understand the meaning of it. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 5 through verse 8. We see an emphasis in God's Word upon the people of God making an investment in and making a commitment to collective Bible study. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 tells us that it pleased God by the foolishness of the message preached to be a part of His gospel plan of salvation. But do we see how Bible study and the Bible school program can help us with that? How it can bolster the efforts that we are trying to do in our individual lives. What it's to be about is more than a custom that we observe quarter by quarter, year after year. It is meant to be something that causes us to grow. You know, the Bible tells us that the church is made up of all different parts and kinds. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 says that one of the classes of people that God wants to make up the church are teachers. And these teachers exist so as to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and verse 12. If we are going to be a people who please God and who spread the influence of Christ in this world, we must be people of the book. Now I began to look through some old periodicals this week to try to get an idea of when and where and how it might have been said of churches of Christ, that they are a people of the book. You know, anecdotally, it has been said that there was a time in which if the Bibles disappeared, 
that you could gather together members of the Lord's church and among them you could compose the Bible from their memory. I'm not sure where we are today. But I do know that if we want to be a people who are so full of the word that it comes out in our lives, then there has to be a commitment to Bible study. And let me suggest to you that that must begin in the home. That's not something that I think. That's something that Moses is indicating to the people of God. And if it was true of the people of old, certainly as the Old Testament is written for our learning, Romans 15 and verse 4 and 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 10, by application we understand the same is true today. Let me uh, challenge you, if you are a Bible class teacher, of the importance of your making preparation. You're putting in the sweat equity at home during the week to be prepared for those students that come into your class. But parents, let me equally challenge you that you make this something that's important and serious in your home. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 1 through 9 shows us two things about the Word of God. I want to deal with the first of them and that is the blessings that come in knowing and obeying the Word of God. That's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 1 through 5. Let me look at them very briefly with you. The first blessing that comes in knowing and obeying the Word of God according to Deuteronomy chapter 6 is that you fear the Lord your God. Now maybe you look at that and you say, that doesn't sound like a blessing. That sounds like something that's very intimidating. But we keep in mind what the book of Deuteronomy is. The book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. The the law that Moses had received up on Mount Sinai. The reason that he is giving it again is because the generation that has risen up in the wilderness are now old enough to go and conquer the land of Canaan which God had promised Abraham. But what had happened to Moses' generation, the uh, older generation? Well, what happened was that they lacked a fear of God. And because of this, it cost them their literal physical lives. And so Moses is reviewing in the book of Deuteronomy, in the first three chapters, what happened to them And if you want to boil it down to some succinct statement, what you could say is that they did not fear the Lord their God, and as a result of it, they rebelled against the command of the Lord their God. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 29. You see, as as you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and chapter 2, God was urging them, He was encouraging them to know His Word and to follow His Word, but they were terrified of the people And they did not trust in the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 29 through verse 32. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 1 and 2, there's a a change in emphasis. He says, now I want to speak to you. Deuteronomy 1 through 3 was about the last generation and they're gone. But now it's your responsibility to listen to these things that I have uh, been given by God in the law of Moses. The law that God has given to me. He says, I want you to hear it. I want you to observe it and I want you to do it. I don't want you to add to it. I don't want you to take away from it. But I want you to observe all that it says. And then he ties it again to fear. He says, I don't want you to fear the people of the land. Deuteronomy 1, 21 and 29. I want you to understand that God has put the fear of you on the natives of the land. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 25. And above all, I want you to fear the Lord your God. He says that in Deuteronomy 4, 10 and Deuteronomy 5, 29. And he says it 13 more times in the book of Deuteronomy, starting in our text. He says, you are to fear the Lord your God. Why? Well, he connects it to acceptable worship. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 14, he connects it to sincerity and well-being and spiritual survival. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 24, he connects it to loving God with sincerity and truth. Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verse 12. And so as we look at the book of Deuteronomy, God is saying that if you want things to go well, you have got to fear the Lord your God. And that's tied to a knowledge of the Word of God. Does God still want His people to fear Him? Well, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus is constantly talking about discipleship and what it looks like. And what He says in Matthew 10 and verse 28 is, Do not fear the one who is able to kill the body but is not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And then in Acts 10 and verse 35... Peter is speaking to the devout and righteous Cornelius and he says, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted with him. Acts 10, 34 and 35. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2 and verse 12, with regard to a specific division problem there at the church. And Peter says, I want you to conduct yourself with fear during the time of your stay here on earth. 1 Peter 1 and verse 17. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should be crippled and warped by fear or that fear should be your main or your only motivation in serving God. But do not discount the blessing that comes in your life. When you fear God. I believe that that's a dangerous time when we have no fear of God before our eyes. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 in verse 18. You see, I, I need to be aware of and appreciate the fact that there is a heaven to gain. But there is a hell to avoid. I appreciate the fact that there is a resurrection and a judgment of the righteous. But there is also of the wicked. And this fear of God that Moses is presenting for the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in connection with the knowledge of the Word of God is that which is going to help us to have a healthy, a full, a balanced view of the Lord God. It's one of the blessings that come when I am in the Word of God is that I come to understand God for who He is. I fear the Lord God. But then the second blessing that comes in knowing God's Word and obeying God's Word is that you may live long. Now there's three so that phrases in the translation that I was looking at. The first one was, so that you may fear the Lord your God. The second phrase is, so that you may live long in the land. And here's what that meant for the Israelites. That meant, you're about to go into a land, the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to Abraham. And I want you to be able to live in that land, not just your generation, but the generations to come, to occupy this land of promise. But that wasn't God's end game. We know that from the Hebrews writer. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says uh, Joshua uh, told them that there was yet another day to come and another rest. He did not deliver them the rest or would no word be given of this rest which is to come. And so what the Hebrews writer is saying is the land of Canaan and in inheriting that was, it's a symbol of, it's a type of what we have before us. The Bible is not encouraging us just with regard to physical life in which our bodies live on land. He is preparing us for everlasting life. You see, that being the case, God wants us to know God's Word and to study and to be familiar with God's Word and to be obedient to His Word because He wants us to have everlasting life. You see, there's a threat. The Bible calls it everlasting death or destruction. 
And God doesn't want that for anyone. Even in Old Testament times, Ezekiel 18 and verse 23, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, except that they may turn and live. God would have all men come to a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. The God, is, the God is not slow concerning His promise, as some men count slowness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And that being the case, God is saying, I want you to understand there is everlasting punishment and everlasting life. Matthew 25 and verse 46. But I want you to live. I want you to live forever with me. Are you convicted of the connection between that life and a knowledge of the Word of God? If so, let me suggest to you that it's not just enough for our seats to be in seats during the Bible class hour. Look, I am a proponent. I am a believer. I would love to see that that 275 would be 275 for Bible class. And that it would be 275 on Wednesday evening because those are opportunities for us to sit and learn God's Word some more. And if we're able physically, why would we walk away from that? But it's more than just about sitting there passively. It's about making an investment in and a commitment to the Bible class. That means I'm going to spend some time during the week in knowing what it is that's going to be studied and I'm going to prepare myself to the very best of my ability. I'm going to do that and I'm going to encourage everybody in my family to do that because it's so important. Teachers, that ups the game for you. You've got to come prepared and ready to teach, to give them who hunger from God's Word. One of the blessings of knowing and obeying God's Word is that we may live long. How long? Forever. With our Father in heaven. There's a third blessing very briefly that I want to look at. And that is that it may go well with you. That's the third so that in that first paragraph. He says, I want things to go well with you. And you know what it meant in that day? It meant that they would enjoy the blessings of the land. That the land would be productive for them. It would be a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you notice that there's this partnership going on? The milk? How would they get the milk? They'd have to go and labor for that. How would we get the honey? The honey would come from nature. God is showing us that He wants this partnership to exist. There's what He wants to give to us, and there's what He wants us to give. And as we notice, then we say, which one's more important? That's the wrong question to ask. It's what am I doing to partner with God and all that God wants to give me? As I look at what's said here, it's certainly important for me to understand what that means for me. God still expects a partnership to exist. There are so many passages that teach this. One that Hiram and I shared together not long ago, chapter 2, in verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. The faith is our part. The grace is God's part. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places are found in Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. But we are to be holy and blameless before Him. We are to hear the gospel and we are to believe the gospel. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and verse 13. I see the Bible class as one way in which we get to partner with God. It is encouraging to look out and to see the efforts that so many make to try to build a productive, a growth-oriented Bible school program. In, in Israel, it seems very sure that they had a priority together, that there was a national priority but that national priority meant that it had to be a family priority. And you know where it begins in the family? It begins with me. 
It begins with you as individual members of that family that says the Bible school is important. And what happens when that happens? It goes well with us in the greatest sense that that could be meant. Those are the blessings of obedience and knowing God's Word. But how practically is that done? Let's hear from Hiram about that. In the end, how we treat the Word of God says everything about how we treat the God of the Word. You know, Israel had a choice. They had options. And what it boiled down to for Israel was this. They could view the Bible as a barrier to their freedom, the law as something that would bore them or something that would keep them from being all that they could. And if they did that, they would cut themselves off from their greatest blessing, which would be a rich and vibrant relationship with God that was based on Scripture. And we have the same choice today. How do you view the Bible? Because in the end, how we view the Bible is the way that we view the God who gave us the Bible in the first place. Is it merely a self-help book with a few nuggets on daily living? Is it a book that has its place in the gathered assembly of the saints, but no further than that? Is it a book that can only be studied and known by experts, but it's not for the common person? Or is the Bible truly, in fact, the book that God wanted us to have within the grasp of every individual and can be taught, read and studied in such a way that all of us can not only glean its truth, but have our lives transformed by it? Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, Israel was to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul and with all of their might or with all of their strength. That's where this starts for Israel. The, the word of God, as we see in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, what Moses teaches Israel collectively is that they were to engage with the word of God. He teaches us how this is to be done in these verses, how it is to transform our family at Lehman Avenue, but then our individual families in our home. There are two ways to listen to this last part of the sermon, verses 6 through 9. It is to hear the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, and to say to ourselves, surely somebody else needs to hear that. Or, you know, they have small children, and that's a lesson for people that are, you know, just starting out, but we're in the sunset years of life, been there, done that. Or, you know, I tried that once, I hear what preachers are saying about this, but that really doesn't work. You can put the word of God, but you don't know what kids are going to do. You haven't seen the teenage years yet. That would be the wrong way. To listen to this lesson, the only right way to hear Moses's words in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 is to see the 120 year old Moses staring Israel in the face as he prepares to depart from this life and saying to them what his heart knows to be true. God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him through his word. And God is saying the same thing to us. What does God say about how to engage his word in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9? Briefly, four things that Moses gives us in this text, and then we'll extend heaven's invitation. Number one, it starts with the individual. Look at verse 6. These words which I command you this day will be in your heart. Moses starts there. I believe in verse 6, Moses is speaking to the parents and the grandparents of those that are in Israel. Now, he's just said in the first five verses, there are blessings to obey in the word of God. And we're to love God with all of our being. But now he talks directly to the adults in the verses that follow. He'll say things about how the baton is to be passed to children and grandchildren. But before the word can affect our children. And our congregation and our community, our country, and ultimately the world in which we live, it has to first affect us. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 and verse 11. In the end, the word has to change us into the image of Christ from day to day. Second Corinthians three and verse 18. And so Moses says, 
It begins with you. It starts with the individual. As congregational and communal as Judaism was, and so much in the old laws about when you come together and everything, when you read Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 6, Moses refuses to let the individual off the hook. He says, this is up to you. In the end, where we put the word of God first needs to be in our own heart. Psalm 37 and verse 31, the psalmist says, his law is in my heart. My foot will not slip. Psalm 40 and verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And that's where we have to keep it. It starts with us. What parents and grandparents should say to themselves is this. This is the question we have to answer. If my children today grow up to have as much Bible knowledge as I have, if they grow up to love and study the Bible as much as I do, will they be destined for heaven? Or will they be doomed? If their study habits mimic mine, if their acquaintance with Scripture is like unto that which I possess today, will it be the case that the Bible will grow to be their constant companion or a visitor that makes special visits on certain occasions, but not that which ultimately brings life? Moses says, first, the word must be on your heart. You have to make a decision to make this personal for you. That's where it begins. The word which I command you today will be on your heart. Notice the words that Moses uses in verses six through nine. He says it'll be in your heart. Teach them to your children. He says when you sit down in the house, underline these. When you walk by the way, when you rise up, when you lie down. He says you will bind them as a sign on your hand and frontless before your eyes on your gates and on your doorposts. If you're reading those verses and you see you and your and you say to yourself, this sounds personal. This sounds like it's my business. You would be right. Moses is driving at this point. Ultimately, it starts with you and me as individuals. How far are we willing to go with the word of God? You know, when you get on a plane, they have that disclaimer at the beginning. They say, in case of emergency, oxygen masks will be let down. And if you're riding with a child or someone that needs assistance, be sure to what? Put on your mask first and then assist the others. Isn't it just common sense? If you stop receiving oxygen, you won't be in a position to help anybody else receive some. And personal gurus of self-development have taken that and they've run with it. And they've said, you know what? That's a principle for self-care. You need to exercise and read and take vacations and take days off. You need to take care of yourself first. But before they ever got a hold of it, Moses is saying to us in Deuteronomy 6, soul care happens first. And the first soul that you and I need to take care of is our very own. Your words were found and I did eat them. And they were the rejoicing of my heart. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16 Moses says it starts with the individual. Now, the second thing is in verse seven. It comes through sustained instruction. These words which I command you this day will be in your heart and you will teach them diligently to your children and you will speak of them or talk with them when you sit down in the house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, sustained instruction is Moses's next point, And it is you need to teach them diligently. What all the major translations try to get across in this verse, the ESV, the New American Standard, the New King James, this teach them diligently. It comes from a word which means to sharpen something. And what Moses is saying is engrave the word of God in and on the minds of children through repeated instruction. This teach them diligently means teach them over and over again so that they don't forget it. We engage the word of God when we make up our minds to continuously review these things. Evidently. When God gave Israel the Old Testament law, the Levitical laws weren't to be heard once and to be remembered from there on. The story of Abraham, Joseph, and even the Exodus was not to be mentioned once in passing reference to be forever lodged in the memories of the parents and children. It was only through repetition. 
Zig Ziglar said, mother, he said, repetition is the mother of learning, the father of action, and ultimately the zenith of accomplishment. We will do better, he says, when we continuously repeat and review things. That's when we really know that we know something. And Moses says, sustained instruction. Continue to teach your children the word. Continue to put it before them. Make sure that they know the word. It's like the blessed man in Psalm 1 and verse 2. In his law, he meditates day and night. That is, to be the blessed man that scripture describes, you only have to study your Bible twice a day. Day and night. By the way, there are no other parts of the day. Just day and night. That's all. You'll be blessed. Sustained instruction. It is to continue to impress it upon our hearts and upon our children's hearts. When they sit in the house, when they lie down, Moses just assumes that his words in verse 6 would be applied and obeyed in such a way that we would be able to freely discuss Scripture wherever we find ourselves. Whether in the house or walking by the way, Moses gives us in verse 7 what's been called a merism, which is a way to describe something in part with the whole. And it's a figure of speech to say these ideas represent everything. If a speaker gets up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, that covers everybody. Boys and girls, that covers everybody or young and old. When Moses says all of these different day parts, what he means to get across is teach the word all the time. Some people read verse seven and they say, I'm exhausted. I don't have time for that. We don't have time not to have time for it. Judgment is too sure. Temptation is too enticing. Our distractions are too numerous. The stakes are too high for us not to do what Moses says we must in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 7. We need to continue to teach our children these things. I know somebody says, I'm worried about oversaturating them. Aren't you afraid that we may very well overdo it? But if you know your own heart, the reality is our temptation in spiritual things is often to underdo it and not overdo it. He says, teach them continually because they're going to need it. And so will you. Think of every opportunity that you have to get the word in them and then to deliver it. When they walk by the house, when they sit down, when they're on their way, put the word of God in a place where they won't lose it. Ultimately, put it in their hearts. It begins with you, but then it involves sustained instruction as you know enough of the Bible. At the end of this chapter in verse 20 through 25, Moses will draw up a scenario where he says, one day your children may very well say to you, why do we do this Passover deal? And why do we do this? And you need to be conversant enough with your own history to be able to say to them, we were slaves in Egypt and we were delivered. And it may be the case with us. That one day our children will say, why do we go there on Sunday and why do we do this and why do we do that? And we need to make sure that they realize that Bible study and worship attendance and involvement in the local church is not something that we engage in because we just so happen to be religious. But they are actually the spiritual disciplines which shape our hearts because we happen to be redeemed. Moses says, I want you to have sustained instruction. Now, here's number three, a strategic plan. Verse eight, the Jews have been mocked for many years. If you ever see a picture of a Jew, you just Google one. They have the phylactery boxes where they have different scriptures in them. Deuteronomy six, four through five is a favorite of theirs. And sometimes people have mocked them for their misapplication of a metaphor that God has given us when he says, in the end, I want you to make them as frontless before your eyes and bind them as a sign on your hand. And we read the Bible and we say, now, that's not what God meant. What God really meant was for what? For us to get the word in our hearts, not literally to build these sort of visors with scriptures scriptures in them and that would be right but what we should be doing is not worried about worrying about their misapplication of it but saying what's our plan to make sure that we get it done can we say like joshua as for me and my house 
will both know and serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. What's your plan? Do you have a plan? Does everybody in your family know the plan? What do you talk about in your family when you can talk about anything, when you set the agenda? Moses has given us something here that matters. And he's saying, I want you to have a strategic plan. Recently, Brittany and I watched the movie King Richard. It's about Richard Williams and the way that he raised up his daughters, primarily Venus and Serena Williams, to go on to be the world class tennis players that they were. And throughout the movie, he says this over and over again. These girls grew up in Compton in a place where you wouldn't expect tennis players to emerge and to succeed the way they did. And he says habitually throughout the movie, I've got a plan for these girls and they're going to make it no matter what. They played tennis in the rain. They played in the sunshine. They played at all hours of the night when the lights were going out and he made sure that they were trained, that they were taught. And what you see in the movie is what we already knew. Human beings have pretty good aim. We normally hit what we strive for, or at least we come close. I know that there are exceptions to this rule and there are parents that have poured all of the love of God into their children that they could muster. And those children have gone astray. And in those instances, the fault lies with the children and not the parents. But appreciate what Moses is saying. If we don't have a strategic plan, then we greatly fail and we fail those that we love the most. Neil talked about this a moment ago, but what if. What if you just did this? This is just an entry level plan. In addition to your own personal Bible study, in addition to your home devotionals, what if every family at Lehman Avenue just made this commitment? December 5th, 2021, every time that the congregation assembles for Bible class, my family, we're just going to be here. We're never going to willfully turn away from what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 6 and what the New Testament says we should engage in as we continue steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship, breaking the bread and prayers. We're never going to willfully turn away from an opportunity to have it written on their their hands, to have it put before their eyelids. We're never going to do that. We're going to do our best to be present and we're going to learn. If you've never done that before, if you all you say, it's just been my habit. I've never stayed before after Bible class. What if you just changed it today? You could make up your mind and just say, today's a new day in our family. You say, well, I've stayed before, but I've never on the way home. I've never asked my children. What did you learn in Bible class and what did you get out of that? What if you just change it today? You say in our family, it's a new day. We've got a strategic plan and our conversations. They're going to be more spiritual. What if you say, I'm going to make sure that they're prepared and I'm going to do my part. Today is going to be a new day. I've got a plan for this family. And by God's grace, spiritually, we're going to succeed. What do we mean when we say something's an acquired taste? When we say something is an acquired taste, we mean people don't like it at first. People say this about coffee. I haven't been convinced. But an acquired taste means over time. You adjust to it. The Bible describes itself as an acquired taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 and verse 8. As newborn babes desire desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You see, I came to Bible class once. I didn't get anything out of it. Just come again. And I tried to seriously study the Bible once and it really didn't do anything for me. Or maybe the sermon or the Bible class teacher wasn't prepared. I didn't get all I thought that I should have out of it. God says, try me again. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Try it. And you'll walk away loving it. Now, here's the fourth and final thing that Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter six. And it's in verse nine. Scribble the word of God everywhere you can. The poet said, I saw tomorrow look at me through little children's eyes and thought how careful we would teach if we were really wise. Bind them as signs on your hands. Put them as frontlets before your eyes. Write them on your doorposts and on your gates. 
every king in Israel was supposed to take the law that Moses had given them and copy out by hand his own copy and study it all the days of his life. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. Every priest was to be fluent in the law of Moses so that he could discharge his duties and the sacrifices as he was commanded. And every family was supposed to have the word of God so placed before them that they couldn't get away from it if they wanted to. In Israel, it should have been the rule. The Old Testament history tells us this didn't happen, but it should have been the case that if anybody fell away from Israel, if anybody fell away from Judaism, it was not from a lack of exposure. It wasn't because they didn't have it in front of them. He says, you write the word everywhere. Keep my commandments and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Proverbs 7, 2 and 3. Would you write the word everywhere in your family? Write it on your heart. Put it before your children. Bind them as signs on your hands. What Moses says in verse 9 is this. Put them on your doorpost. That's your house. But your gates, they wouldn't have had gates at their house. He's saying put this in your community. Do what you can to get it all around you so that you can't escape it. And the truth is for you and me and for everybody in every place. There are no bare, no bare doors or bare gates. Every house, every family, every community has something written on the gates. And people see it every day. We imbibe this intuitively. Some people have on their doors, make all the money today when you go. Some people have on their doorposts, you better not screw up. Don't fail or else. Some people have written on their gates, you make sure that you're stronger and better than everybody else. And some people even have on their gates, we don't care what you do, just don't bother us. What must be on the gates of our doorposts and of our house is this. God loves you. He wants you to love him back. Get his word into your heart. Don't waste your life. Give it back to the God who gave it. Psalm 119, 165 says he gives great peace to those that love his law. Their feet will not stumble. Moses says, Israel, I don't want you to stumble. I'm not going over to Canaan with you, but you've got something better than my presence. You have the presence of God. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9 is about the blessings of obeying God's word. And how do we engage it? It starts with you as an individual and then sustained instruction, making up your mind to continue to teach your children, your grandchildren to say we're going to have a plan. And that plan is going to involve the local congregation. And then we're going to write it everywhere at every opportunity that we have. Whatever you write on the heart of a child, no water can wash it away. Though sands may be shifted when billows arise and efforts of time may decay. Some stories may perish, some songs be forgot, but this graven record, time changes it not. Whatever you write on the heart of a child, a story of gladness or care, that heaven is blessed or that earth is defiled, it will linger unchangeably there. Moses says, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to have the blessings of God? Obey his word and then engage it. Maybe somebody's heart is bare today and they want to write the word of God upon it. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, ready to repent and turn away from sin, to confess Jesus as Lord and to be immersed in water, to have their sins forgiven. We would love to assist you in that. Maybe you say, I'm a Christian and I wrote the word of God on my heart a long time ago, but it's since been blotted out. And there have been things written over it and the penmanship is fading so far that I don't remember God like I should or his word. We want to help you with that as well. Maybe you say today's going to be a new day in our family. December 5th, we're going to, this is a turning point for us. We're doing something different, and that is we're going to engage the Word of God as a family like we never have before. It's a great undertaking, and it just may be the case that you would like the prayers on your behalf for your consistency, for your courage to do that. 
Our elders will be down here to receive you. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage one another. If we can help you and if you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.